The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 379th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be talking about a tuberculosis sanatorium. This one is the Molly Stark Sanatorium. It was suggested to us by listeners Anthony Wallace and Jennifer Svoboda. But before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Brittany with two T's, Leah, Paula, Jessica, Joshua, Katina with a K, Christina with a C-H, Amanda, Lisa, Elizabeth, Margie, David, Allison with only one L, Tara, Anna, Paul, and Ash. Welcome to the Facebook Spooktacular crew, you guys. And now, this moment in oddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Janae McCabe. Imagine a life of hanging around hydrothermal vents deep in the ocean in temperatures hitting 750 degrees Fahrenheit and eating bacteria for food. Doesn't sound real pleasant, but it's a life that is perfect for the scaly foot snail. There's little competition in this part of the ocean and not much in the way of predators. But one has to ask, how does a little snail survive in this inhospitable environment? By building itself a plate of armor. This snail is the suit of armor of hot places in the ocean. The snail shell is made of iron sulfide, and the soft part of the snail that is technically known as the foot is covered with iron plates. This is the only animal on Earth that can utilize iron this way. The armor is similar to chainmail, so the snail is able to move easily. The snail has three layers to its shell. The top layer is iron plated, the bottom is calcified material, and there's a thick, squishy organic layer in between. The scaly foot snail makes its food from bacteria in a process called chemosynthesis. A gland inside the snail synthesizes the bacteria into a food that the snail can eat. I love snails, and I have one in my fish tank. I named him Gary. Meow. But I have to admit that an iron-plated snail certainly is odd. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? And now, this month in history. In the 
month of April, on the 12th in 1961, a Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, became the first human in space. Gagarin had worked as a foundryman at a steel plant before he joined the Soviet Air Forces and became a pilot. He and 11 other men would be selected as cosmonauts for the Soviet space program. They all trained rigorously on a program similar to Olympic athletes. When the group voted for who among them should be the first in space, nearly everyone chose Gagarin. Six men, including Gagarin, were broken off into the Sochi Six and received more specialized training with G-forces and oxygen starvation tests. They were then tested for readiness. Gagarin was formally nominated and he would make his flight into history aboard the Vostok 1. It would be his only flight into space. Gagarin orbited the Earth in a flight that lasted 108 minutes before returning home a hero. He became an international celebrity but continued to fly regular aircraft. He was killed at the age of 34 when his MiG-15 training jet crashed on March 27, 1968. We've covered many former and abandoned sanatoriums and mental institutions on this podcast. It never ceases to amaze us how many of these buildings still stand, and all of them seem to have stories of haunting activity. The Molly Stark Sanatorium in Ohio is in really poor condition, and thus, no one is allowed inside the buildings and a protective fence has been erected, complete with barbed wire at the top. Despite this fact, many people have been inside and claim to have had experiences. The sanatorium became a hospital later caring for generally ill people, mentally ill people, addictions, the developmentally disabled, and the elderly. Join us as we explore the history and haunts of the Molly Stark Sanatorium. Stark County in Ohio is a fascinating place. This is located in the northeast part of Ohio and sits at the Allegheny Plateau. The mound builders were the first to live in this once vast wilderness. And it really does amaze me how much mound building you have going on in that Ohio area. I think it was just because it was such a rich area for hunting and gathering and all that good stuff. White settlers arrived with Western expansion and signed treaties with the Native Americans that included the Miamis, which I find interesting that they would be up there since we have Miami down here. Exactly. Wyandots, Shawnee, and Iroquois. And they began building cabins in a land with plenty of fresh water, abundant fish, and a variety of wildlife. 80% of these people that arrived around 1805 were German-speaking Pennsylvanians. Stark County split off from Columbiana County in 1807. The county was named for a man who never even ventured into Ohio, but he was a hero of the Revolutionary War, General John Stark. Before he died in 1822, he was the oldest surviving general from that war, so he outlived them all, Kelly. He fought valiantly at the Battle of Bennington and is credited with coining the New Hampshire motto, Live Free or Die. His wife Molly cared for the sick and dying in New Hampshire, and that is for whom the Molly Stark Sanatorium was named. So I find it interesting. They named this county for a guy who never even ventured into Ohio, and then they named this sanatorium after his wife. Must have been a really well-liked guy. Apparently. (laughs) I mean, he was a war hero, so there you go. Molly Stark Sanatorium would be one of 25 tuberculosis hospitals in the state of Ohio, and it followed the guidelines of providing patients with plenty of sunshine and fresh air. If only that really was the cure. (laughs) It's amazing how much they thought that that would take care of tuberculosis. While I think it definitely helps if these people were in some cramped 
polluted city. We it's all true. know. Breathing a bunch of fresh air is not going to just heal the bacteria that's in your lungs. Exactly. Stark County sold its interest in a sanatorium in the next county over, the Springfield Lake Tuberculosis Sanatorium, and passed a bond issue in 1927 that would give the county $750,000 for a new 150-bed facility. Architect Albert Thayer of Newcastle, Pennsylvania, was hired to design the new hospital, and this would be in the Spanish Revival style. The design included vaulted porticos, recessed balconies, and lots of windows. There was also a rooftop veranda, ornate marble, stone decorations, and chandeliers. The entire complex would include a nurse's home, superintendent's residence, a children's hospital, and a power plant. The grounds were grown as a beautiful garden to provide therapy and relaxation. Molly Stark Sanatorium opened officially on August 23, 1929, just outside of Louisville, Ohio. And I don't know if it's pronounced Louisville in Ohio or Louisville. It can be different depending upon <laughs> what state the, the city is. Exactly. That's why sometimes people get after us about our pronunciations. And I'm like, well, it depends upon the region, because if this was Colorado, it would be Louisville. And sometimes even people within that county will pronounce it differently, exactly. even though they live there. <laughs> but we'll say Louisville since it's closer to Kentucky than it is to Colorado. Okay. The sanatorium had a unique system for housing patients. Anyone who was completely mobile would be placed on the first floor and they were given freedom to roam the grounds. Bedridden patients were placed on the top floor. Those who were partly ambulatory or in recovery and experiencing health improvements would be placed in the middle floors. The second floor was mainly for recreation with radios, a library, and game room. In 1938, the Works Progress Administration, or WPA, installed 1,200 feet of tunnels under the complex to connect the buildings. This made it easier for staff and patients to get around during bad weather. I just find it amazing that you could install all this tunneling underneath buildings that are already there. And I was figuring it was to transport the deceased. Well, we know based on <laughs> places like Waverly Hills right. that that was a main thing so that people wouldn't see all of these dead people being hauled out of there. So it gave you hope that you could make it through the TB. Yep. So I have a feeling that was one of the things here, too, because... They had a few buildings on the property, but it's not like when you're talking asylums where they had basically whole cities. The sanatorium was not set up that way. So it doesn't seem like they would have a need that much for the tunnels. So I'm betting that was more the case. The east and west wings were expanded in 1952 under architect Charles E. Firestone with a $500,000 bond issue being passed. Another 250000 was added by state and federal government. Firestone's additions added more rooftop porches and increased capacity to 230 patients. And I always think about these places like Colorado or Ohio that are up north. Well, even in Louisville, Kentucky, they have pictures of the people who would be out on the verandas and have snow on top of them. So you always think <laughs> right. putting them up on these rooftop porches year round. Yikes. At least for me, sounds not like a good prospect. <laughs> you need to be wrapped up like the kid in a Christmas story. <laughs> That's right. In a snowsuit where you can't get up. <laughs> The name was changed to Molly Stark Hospital after this, and other patients were welcomed into the hospital. Advances in antibiotics helped in the treatment of TB at this time, and lowered the deaths by two-thirds. So not as many people with TB were cared for here, although some would remain until 1970. The few still left at the time were transferred to J.T. Nist Nursing Home. The hospital would eventually become a catch-all for the indigent, mentally ill, addicted, and developmentally disabled. By July 1975, nearly 40 staff had resigned, and the hospital was running at a deficit. The writing was on the wall by 1995, and Molly Stark Hospital closed. 
It then sat abandoned while various groups decided what to do with the property. One suggestion by architect John Patrick Picard was to rehab the building and use it for an assisted living facility. A developer named Steve Kuhn thought that the property could be converted into retail space and apartments. Neither of these projects would go forward for one significant roadblock. It was going to cost nearly $10 million to remove asbestos and get the buildings prepared for rehabilitation. Which is one very important reason why you may not want to be in an urban explorer and go into some of these abandoned buildings because it's really unsafe inside this place. So I would not trespass into it just for that reason alone, that it's got all this asbestos in it. The really sad thing is this is a very cool looking building. I love the architecture on it. So I think that's why they've just been leaving it there and not demolishing it. But that is what was left on the table was demolition. And it's had rumors that it's going to be demolished for years. But the buildings continue to stand. A suspicious fire started in the main building in 2008. Today, the former sanatorium is part of Molly Stark Park after the county park board bought the property for a dollar in 2008. Outdoor walking tours are offered and there is a celebration garden. There are plans to develop the 35 acres into something in the future, but for now, the abandoned buildings just sit falling apart which, as I said, is tragic because they're interesting architecturally and historically. And I think that is one of the reasons why they keep them standing is just because the architecture is so cool that they hate to lose the building. So maybe they'll just end up gutting it at some point. So it's just kind of a outside structure. I hope so. Many windows are broken out. Lighting fixtures hang loose from the ceiling. Paint is peeling and rooms are full of debris left behind from its former life. There's also lead paint and asbestos fears, despite the county receiving $200,000 for asbestos cleanup in 2004. And that's kept officials from allowing anyone in the buildings, and they are regularly patrolled. This hasn't stopped stories from being told about hauntings. Some stories date back to the time when the hospital was open. Nurses claimed that the elevators would run by themselves, and both staff and patients claimed to see shadow figures in various parts of the main building. After the hospital closed in 1995, people on the outside would claim to see glowing lights inside the building. These orbs of lights are mostly seen on the second floor. Disembodied voices were heard echoing down the hallways and down shafts. Former patients have been seen looking out the windows. There are some who claim that nothing negative is in the former hospital because it was named for a caring woman, and the care offered there was good as well. But we found a few stories from urban explorers claiming that something evil is in the main building. These were comments from the Dark Lucidity blog. Author Brian Moreland, who hosts the blog, wrote of his visit to Molly Stark. After walking down the backside of the east wing, we came to a juncture where the west wing began. Here there was a window which appeared to have been completely removed and hadn't been boarded up like all the other ground level entrances. I climbed into a very small room, which looked more like it had been used for storage purposes when the hospital had been open. The single door out led into a hallway filled with debris along with odds and ends of furniture. Although the lighting was dimmer in the building, I could still clearly see the elevator doors off to the left, which made the hairs on my arms stand up. As I continued shooting photos while walking down the hallway, I began to hear faint movement on the steps just down near the end. The closer I got to those steps, the more intense the alarm started going off in my head that there was more than one entity approaching. I've always been sensitive to paranormal activity, and so I use this as another tool of investigation. And at this point, my instinct screamed at me to get out, and so I did very quickly. Unknown wrote on March 24, 2019, I went in that place one time and will never do it again. There is evil, and it's powerful. Whatever it was wouldn't let me go to the second floor. It paralyzed me on the stairs. 
I couldn't move. Didn't matter how hard I tried, so I prayed. That's when it pushed me off the stairs. And when I hit the ground, I had control of my body again. I never ran so fast in my life. Whatever it was, didn't follow me. Good thing. And another anonymous person wrote on July 5th, 2016, I've been in the basement of Molly Stark and felt very strange and negative entities coming down the stairs that run to the right of the elevator shaft if you're coming in from the back. I left pretty quickly after that as I wasn't going to wait for them to reach me. So here you have another person who basically is just running because they have that bad feeling. It's not that they've seen something. The first guy, he heard something, but it was just a matter of feeling it. Then that second person that you described actually was physically attacked. And when you go into a place like this, it does make me wonder, especially because, you know, why would there be so much negative there? Because this wasn't like an asylum. This was a hospital where people were being taken care of. And it sounds like they were getting pretty good care there. It's the same thing with Waverly Hills. I, I often wonder, why is there so much evil type stuff that people talk about negative could energy it, there? Could it be a tulpa? That's what I'm wondering. If over time, people coming in here, we don't know what's been done in this abandoned building. It's been sitting there for two decades or more. So have been people doing some weird things in there. Or on the other hand, I often wonder about the environmental stuff affecting you. If you're in there and there's this asbestos and lead paint and who knows what else going on, who knows what kinds of EMFs, I'm assuming there's no electricity in the building anymore. But is there something that is causing people to feel like that? True. And, you know, with the tulpas, it could just be a matter of people with fear in their heart, fear of what they're possibly going to experience. And that just feeds into it. And in a case like this, this is a place that you are trespassing. You've broken in. It's got cameras everywhere. And usually the security guards catch these people. So is there some kind of anxiety that you're already feeling because you're doing something that you're not supposed to be doing? And is that kind of enhancing those feelings? I would imagine so. Or it really could just be a totally evil entity hanging out in there. I don't know. But of course, our minds like to reason out why would there be something going on here that would be causing these people to feel negative. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by June's Journey. Hey, Kelly, we are always looking for new podcasts to listen to. Yes, we are. I have one that I think is right up your alley because it is based on a game that you've been playing and really enjoying called June's Journey. No way. They have a podcast now, too? Yeah, the basic premise behind the game and then this podcast is there's this woman called Autumn Driver. She's living this unremarkable life as a 30-something in the 21st century. And she goes away to her family estate on Orchid Island. There she finds the diary of her great-grandmother, June Parker. So that's what June's journey is based on. She also finds that, you know, a lot of the problems that we have today, they had the same problems about 100 years ago, too. And maybe the advice from back then is just as relevant today. June's Journey, The Lost Diaries, takes you from the 2020s back to the 1920s. You have tales from Prohibition, the trenches of World War I, and the women's suffrage movement. And it's all based on characters from Wooga's smash hit hidden object game, June's Journey. It's voiced by Sarah Grayson, who is a voice actress that has also worked on indie video game hits like Gone Home and Tacoma. This is the first narrative mobile game podcast tie-in ever. And if you play June's Journey like Kelly does, you're going to get never-before-heard hints about heroine June Parker's life before she became a detective. Oh, very cool. Listen to June's Journey, The Lost Diaries for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. I just added it to my podcast catcher. It launches on April 2nd, 2021. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Several paranormal experiences are related by police officers, giving them even more credibility. Former Stark County Sheriff Tim Swanson is one of those men. Nearly 20 years ago, Swanson was escorting a group of jail inmates through the buildings on a sunny afternoon. Their purpose was to retrieve any furniture or other items that could be sold at a county auction. The group wound their way through the stairwells, corridors, and rooms. Swanson said, We were back down on the first floor in one of the hallways, and all of a sudden we heard a bed being dragged across the floor. The group went to the next floor up from where the sound seemed to have originated. They were stunned to see that there was an area in the dust that clearly had been cleared away, as though something had been scooted across the floor and drugged through the dust. There was no one else in the building, and the group had stuck together. Swanson said, After we got up there and there was nobody there, you get a little chill and you think, What in the hell did that? The thing is not going to move there on its own. I guess I'm a skeptic, but what I heard was what I heard. Canton Police Lieutenant Dennis Pellegrino was the only officer to spend the night inside Molly Stark. He was there on duty to protect the guns and evidence stored in the East Wing after the police department set up offices there. They had no security system for the first couple of nights, and Pellegrino was tasked with keeping everything secure. He didn't get restful sleep. At first, he blamed all the noises that he heard on the fact that the building was old and the pipes were creaking and groaning and the boiler system was noisy. But then after 2 a.m., he was awakened by a horrendous dragging noise above him. He ran upstairs thinking someone had broken in and found that a bed had been moved. He knew the room well and knew that that bed was not where it had been before. Pellegrino was told a story by a member of the SWAT team as well. The team used one of the buildings for training exercises, and this officer said he saw a man in a brown suit run across a hallway. Other officers claimed to see a man in a brown suit peering out of windows. There was no one in this building other than officers in uniforms. Pellegrino said, you got a sense there's something there. And you got to think, SWAT team, they're not going to see something like that. And why would there be some guy running around in a brown suit while they're trying to do exercises? Former Sheriff's Inspector Steve Reddy had stayed at the Stark Metropolitan Narcotics Unit office inside the former hospital late one night in 2001. He was the only person in the building when he heard a voice say, Steve, Reddy said, and I said, yeah, and there was no response. I looked up and no one was there. I didn't recognize the voice. It was just so off the cuff. And then, of course, you get up and scurry to the hall to see if anybody is there. And I was alone. It sent chills up my spine. And needless to say, I gathered up my things that night and left. Yeah, that's pretty creepy because it's like not only are you hearing a disembodied voice, but it's saying your name. It's like, how does it know who I am? Former Louisville Police Chief Andrew Turkowski found himself alone inside the Molly Stark Metro Unit Wing 2 one night. Turkowski said, I certainly heard and saw things that I'd be at a loss to explain. 
I'm not going to suggest it's paranormal or ghosts, but at the same time, I'd be at a loss to explain it. I think a number of people who were there might report to you it wouldn't be uncommon to hear things on the floor above us, especially furniture moving. That does seem to be the most common haunting experience people are having, which makes you wonder, is it just residual or do they move beds a lot there? The only thing with that is if it's residual, why would there be a drag mark through the dust? Oh, that's true. So something is physically moving. You're right. Yeah, that's what I would think. That. And he added that even the police dog seemed to be aware of a strange presence. He explained, one thing that always struck me as odd is periodically he would just kind of stand up in the office and walk to the door and look down the hallways and all the hair on the back of his neck would stand up and he would howl only in a way that he would in that hospital. So he definitely was detecting something. In the Canton Repository, Mary Lou Patterson, 76, of Plain Township, visited the former Molly Stark Hospital on a recent afternoon in search of the doorway where her late mother was photographed shortly after the tuberculosis sanatorium opened in 1929. Patterson's mother, Lucy Holmes Ferraro, was a nurse who cared for younger patients in a smaller building adjacent to the primary hospital. A black-and-white image captures the day she was waiting for her father to pick her up from work. The daughter found that marble-framed entrance. Vines, overgrowth, fractured concrete, wood-patched windows, and other decay engulfed the formerly ornate building. This is the first time I have ever felt the presence of my mom, Patterson said. I just felt my mom standing there. It was warm, it was good, and I cried. Now, I don't know if she's talking about the legitimate spirit of her mother standing there or if it was just the essence of remembering her being in that picture. But either way, I thought it was a very cool story. Yeah, definitely. Reverend Jerry Walker has a lot of experiences investigating haunted places. And although he's never been inside Molly Stark, he believes that it's haunted. And I described him as having a lot of experiences investigating haunted places because he called himself a paranormal expert. You know how I feel about that. <laughs> He claimed, I was walking on the outside. I looked up because it looked like something was watching me. And I looked up and I saw something staring at me from the balcony of Molly Stark. Mary Lynn Solon of Louisville worked as a nurse's aide starting in 1974. She helped in both the geriatric unit and the handicapped children's unit. Nothing unusual would happen during the day, but come night, things got strange. Solon Lynn recalled, my first night on midnights, they said if you hear stuff or see stuff, don't be alarmed. I'd be like, I'm sorry, wait, what? <laughs> Excuse <laughs> if anything, me? <laughs> if you hear anything strange, just don't worry about it, okay? It is kind of spooky. I found out for myself. There was a couple of times when the elevator came down and opened and there was nobody in there. The aide also believed that a spirit used to mess with a young patient's oxygen tank. That's scary. Yeah, Not because you... they're messing with their tank, but because that could really yeah. be a problem. It had an alarm that would go off when it needed ice added to it. Many times, right after she added ice and would walk away, the alarm would go off. On one occasion, when she turned around and looked back, she saw a white mist float across the room. Yeah, so normally my explanation for that would be, well, it's a faulty system that just going off because you put right. the ice in there. But then when you see a white mist floating around, okay, well, maybe it's not faulty equipment. Well, and the white mist wasn't the only manifestation that she saw. She also saw a black figure run across a balcony, blocking out the light. So she knew she wasn't imagining the figure. I like it when they describe it that way, because if something blocks light like that, you know there's something there. Exactly. She would sometimes hear disembodied voices coming from the underground tunnels, and furniture in the break room would move on its own. Something really likes to move furniture in this building. I don't know why. Clearly. Hospitals and sanatoriums are notorious for being haunted, more than likely because of all the death and tuberculosis took many people in the prime of their lives and in a painful way. 
Could some of these spirits still be wandering the corridors? Would they remain if the buildings are finally demolished? Do they just want people to visit and hear their stories? Is the former Molly Stark Sanatorium haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, Kelly, this is one of those places we can't say I'd like to visit that someday because we can't. And I'm not going to scale the fence and uh, hurdle myself over the barbed wire in order to do it. You're not. No. (laughs) You're not very dedicated, are you? And looking at a lot of these (laughs) urban explorer websites and reading how they managed to get inside the building and stuff, I don't think I'd go to all the trouble that they would have to go to to throw extra little... They'd bring like emergency ladders, like escape ladders that you can have for an apartment or something. They'd haul those with them and somehow throw them up through a second story window and climb up. And it just (laughs) isn't worth it. Again, you're not very dedicated. (laughs) You're right. I would would make a horrible (laughs) urban explorer. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. On the website is where you can find out how to support the show, where you can listen to us, follow us on social media. And we also have a tab up there for the St. Augustine ghost hunt that we are hosting on September 17th. It's a Friday night right before our live show in St. Augustine on September 18th. We only have 30 spots for that, and 17 of them are already filled. So if you want to do that, you need to get on it. Yep. Come on out and join us. It's going to be a blast. And you need to get your live show tickets because those are going fast, too. We're halfway sold out on that one. Indeed, we are. And in case you guys didn't already know, Hillbilly Horror Stories is hosting a Caribbean cruise in 2022 that they are selling their cabins and stuff really fast there, too. So I'd get on that one as well. And Kelly, it sounds like it's going to be an annual thing. Very cool. Looking forward to it. So, you know, I could see a future where we are aboard with the Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast. The the death boat. Oh, my gosh. If we do it, you know, we're going to be singing that as part of our live show. (laughs) Fabulous. We did get some messages and emails from people I want to share with you guys. First, we have Mike in the Spooktacular crew. He wrote, I have to share a story with you guys. I work at a state psych prison. Last year, a friend passed due to cancer. I had taken a different position for the better of last year. I came back to my old shift and was talking to a friend about our friend that passed. Well, we had a giant fan going and it just stopped. I got up to go look at it and I didn't even touch it and it started back up. We looked at each other and agreed that it was our friend wanting to hear what we were saying about him. Yeah, maybe just letting them know, hey, I'm here. Yeah, it could be a couple of things. Either he wanted to let them know I'm here or this fan is really loud. What are you guys saying about me? (laughs) It could be. Dana and the crew wrote, I had a very interesting experience early this morning. It was around 2 a.m. I was starting to wake up because I had to pee. She must be like us, Kelly. (laughs) Exactly. As I was becoming more and more awake, I felt a cat or kitten put their face in my face. I heard it purring. I felt its whiskers brushing my face. I thought it was my cat Henry because Henry does this when he wants something. By that time, I was awake. Then I remembered both my cats were outside. At this point, I should tell you that my house is low-key haunted. I love it when they use terms like that, Kelly. Loki haunted? <laughs> Loki versus extremely haunted. Yes. <laughs> and then it was really cute. People were commenting on that too about their Loki haunted houses as well. I guess there's different levels of does it scare me that bad or not? There's a guy spirit that visits my basement and I think there are pet spirits that hang out in the house. Well, clearly there's a cat one. That sounds like to me. Sounds that way. Stephanie wrote us and she suggested a location that we're going to be doing probably next month. But she started off writing, I just started listening to your podcast and absolutely love it. Y'all do an amazing job stating facts and keeping a light and friendly banter. You've quickly become one of mine and my daughter's absolute favorites. Nice. I love it when family listens. 
April wrote us, Hello, I wrote in about a month ago for the first time to let y'all know that I was a new listener. My husband is active duty army and is currently stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia. Thank him for his service. We appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. He currently has about seven months until retirement. And because we purchased our home shortly before the army decided to send him elsewhere for this last year, our kids and I stayed behind in Alabama. Luckily, we are within driving distance to him, so we make many trips. I play your podcast the entire six-hour drive there and back every visit. Love that. Fort Stewart is only about a 45-minute drive to Savannah, and I told my husband all of the details about the Marshall House episode. I'm a huge history geek and also love anything dealing with paranormal. My husband, on the other hand, likes history but is not a fan of the latter. He thought I was crazy for wanting to stay in a supposedly haunted hotel, but he also loves me and my quirky ways very much, so he got right on the phone and made us reservations. Aw, that's sweet. So he doesn't like that stuff, but he's like, all right, I'll make the reservations. He even requested the fourth floor because I mentioned it supposedly got the most quote-unquote action. We stayed this past Sunday through Tuesday. While we didn't see anything definitive, either in person or on camera, we did have a few little experiences that could have been more than coincidences. We checked in, took our bags to room 413, then decided to explore the hotel. First, we went to the third floor to look at the artifacts that they had on display. As we were walking down the third floor hallway, the lights flickered once, then twice. I asked my husband if he saw them too, and as soon as I did, they flickered again. Our first night, we had laid in bed with the TV on. Everything was golden until we decided it was time to actually go to sleep and turn off the TV and all of the lights. It was more than a little spooky and made it hard to just fall asleep. I finally managed to drift off around 11, and at exactly 2.52 a.m., I awoke abruptly and sat straight up in bed. I had heard and felt someone stomping directly up to my bedside. I felt what seemed like a very brief vibration or shaking of my legs like something had run straight into the bed and bumped it. I immediately slapped at my husband and asked if he'd heard it too. He is a heavy sleeper and hard to wake up at that. He rolled over but didn't respond so I just stared into the dark for a few minutes. I guess to make sure nothing was there. Then checked my phone to see what time it was which is how I knew it was exactly 2.52. I finally drifted off to sleep somehow and when we woke in the morning my husband told me that he remembered me waking him up but couldn't remember why. He then told me he had woken up around 4 a.m. to some noises in the hall. This absolutely could have all been in our heads, I know, especially considering that the second night was completely uneventful and neither of us woke up a single time through the night. While in Savannah, we were also able to visit both the Bonaventure Cemetery and the Colonial Park Cemetery. We walked down River Street and visited Wright Square. This mini vacation was 100% out of my husband's comfort zone and I thought he'd have a miserable time, but he absolutely loved it almost as much as me. Awesome. He even asked to listen to your podcast episode on the Marshall House before we stayed. Aw, I love that. Sorry for the lengthiness of this email. I just had to let y'all know about our experiences and thank you again for your podcast. We probably wouldn't have even visited Savannah if not for them. And I'd written back, that just makes us so happy to know that we're inspiring people to visit places. Absolutely. I love that city. So thank you so much for sharing that, April. And I'm glad you guys had a great time there. And then I want to thank Ari... I think that's how you say it. It's A-E-R-I for your email about sharing this Veterans Affairs Cemetery representative position that became available at the National Cemetery Administration in Sarasota, Florida. Oh, very nice. So if any of you who live in the Sarasota area happen to listen to this podcast and you would be interested, you're a veteran in getting that position, please email us and let us know and I can get you some more information on that. Very cool. Thank you for that. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger.
We have a whole bunch of people to welcome into the cemetery. First, we have Deb Deal. You're going to be placed in a niche wall. Nissi Saganitso, and I hope I said that right, and Wendy Rose. Both of you are going to be placed in chest tombs. And Brittany Quarter and Ariel Rose. Both of you are going to be placed in garden crypts, and you will have HGB logo mugs coming out to you in three months. Thank you so much for supporting HGB. We could not make this show without our executive producers. And this episode was also brought to you by June's Journey. Make sure to check out The Lost Diaries on whatever podcast catcher you listen to. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. They all trained rigorously on a program similar to Olympic athletes. Athletes. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Six men, including Gagarin, were spoken. Were spoken off? I'm the one with the problems today. Join us. Are we... What are we doing about that? What are we, what are we doing? <laughs> Stark County split off from Columbiana County. From Columbiana. Columbiana. Columbiana County in 1807. How many tries was that? <laughs> Columbia. I just like saying that word. Columbiana. <laughs> many windows are broken out. Broken? Broken out? See, I want some brokey, brokies. Brokies. Is brokies. That what you call them? <laughs> Brownie cookie combined. Some stories date back to the time when the hospital was open. Uh, hospital. Puberty. <laughs> had stayed at the Stark Metropolitan Narcotics Unit Office inside the former hotel. Hotel? (laughs) Now it's turned into a hotel, Kelly. My goodness. It did everything there. Jack of all trades. Building of all trades. It sent chills up my spine. And... 